You're listening to Strong Asian Lead, a bi-weekly podcast for Asian Pacific Islanders in film, TV, theater, and streaming. I'm your host, Masami Moria. I want to thank you for tuning in this week. Uh, if you're a returning listener, I like to say you're our strong Asian listeners. And if you're new to the podcast, thank you for uh, listening in. This is something that I've been working on for a long time. We've got a lot of great interviews and resources we want to share. Uh, just been building up knowledge, and we want to take the uh, the Hollywood industry from the Asian American perspective because I think it's not talked about enough, um, not in depth. You get here here and there, a little representation on screen, but you know what are the dynamics? What are the power plays? What are how do you get into the industry, and what are the barriers against us? So this is something that we're I've been building for a good almost two years now, and uh, I'm excited for the next year to come. And 2022 is something that already I'm only like in week two and I feel like, wow, we're already off to a great start. So, um, but this week on the podcast, uh, we're going back to our interviews. So I think what we're going to do on every Tuesday will be like a one-on-one solo episode, but on Thursdays, we're going to put this out as interview podcast and what we're calling our legacy, um, legacy, (laughs) legacy segments. And so basically we're leading or speaking with leaders who are spoken with us, uh, who have paved the way through us from the 1980s, 70s, 60s, and just built the Hollywood industry as we know it today and thanking them for what they've done for us before we even got to there. And so today we on the podcast, we have Tim Dang. Tim Dang is the former artistic producing director at East West Players, and he's still a theater director and producer today, and he's still acting and doing voiceovers as you know for many years. And I think it's, it was really special to speak with him on this podcast interview. And East West Players, if we haven't already mentioned before, is the longest proof of color theater company in the United States, maybe the world. And uh, I think that's really valuable for us to think about, you know, who the legacies are and, and having those people and sharing what they've taught us, and what they've learned. And you know, I think that's very, it's important to me. And I hope that's important to you. With that being said, like sharing is caring and sharing knowledge is even caring even more. So please share this podcast with uh, all of your friends, anybody who might even know Tim. Tim's been around for a long time. He knows a lot of people. And so I, I hope that this is a great interview for us as newcomers into the industry to listen and learn, but also, you know, another interview with people who have maybe heard know Tim, Tim is as a personal person. Um, I will also say this is almost a two, almost a two hour podcast, it's like an hour and 40 minutes or so. And so I totally understand if you want to pause in the middle of the beginning, um, middle somewhere and just take a break. Totally cool. Like we all have to take breaks sometimes. And yeah, this, but I think it's uh, better to keep it as one podcast and split it up into two. And some of these interviews do kind of go a little long, but I think it's because I have a lot of questions. I have a lot of uh, information I want to gather in. I don't want to have to schedule like two interviews. And so, yeah, these will be a little bit longer, uh, but I hope that you stay in and they listen to the information being said because yeah, these people just don't, you know, one of the reasons why I did the legacy segments is because we don't get to hear from all these people. And a lot of times they don't get the airtime. That's why I want to share it and, and record it and keep that legacy going and preserve the culture that we've built here in Asian American entertainment. These are valuable lessons that we can learn. So again, thank you for listening and please share this with your friends and people and share it around, tag us. I would love to be tagged on something every once in a while. With that being said, here's my interview with Tim Dang. Yeah, my, my agent keeps on telling me to, you know, to get like a, an in-home system so that I can record 
you know, at home, but, you know, I would still rather go to the studio and have the engineers kind of like take care of everything. Oh, uh, yeah. You know, it's, you know, it's not, definitely worth it to go into the studio. But if you have like, you know, doing a voiceover and just in your closet, you just want to do it. Or even for podcasts, I don't know how many your interviews you're doing, but a uh, uh, $100 mic for like, just like the sound 20 times better. <laughs> right, right, Get right. That, that depth in your voice feels really sure, good. Sure, sure. <laughs> Yeah, so actually, uh, you're a tenor, but I'm hearing you as a ba- as a bass. Yeah, oh, I've been practicing my deep. Voice. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've, I, yeah, I, you know, I've I've had to do, uh, you know, kind of like a George Takei kind of um, kind of imitation sometimes. Uh, you know, when they say, you know, can you can you deepen your voice and and all that for uh, for like you know animation characters and all that, and they're always thinking, yeah, think George Takei. The only thing about you know George Takei, you know, is they have to pay a lot of money for George Takei's voice, and uh, you know they don't have to pay me much for for my voice. It's the knockoff George. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, Tim, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Uh, I'm excited to hear about your your lived experiences and uh, your time at East West Players and in time in the film and television industry. You've done so much for so many years. Uh, I'm really excited to hear more about you from yourself. So, oh, yeah, great. thank you so much. Glad to share. Well, Tim, I'd love for you to introduce yourself, what you're doing now uh, to hear what people are, because you're already doing, you're still doing amazing things, but I want to hear, uh, introduce you to the audience. Oh, sure. Well, um, when I left East West Players back in 2016 as the artistic director there, uh, I wanted to know if there was one more chapter or at least a couple more chapters. I, I don't want to date myself or, or say that I'm that I'm old and falling off the cliff, but uh, wanted to see what else was out there. I think as an artist that all of us um, crave the the appetite to to tell more stories and to tell as many stories as we can, because uh, in essence, I believe all artists are storytellers and master storytellers at that. And what was really nice is that my, uh, my old alma mater, USC, uh, called me and asked if I wanted to teach and to share, you know, my, my experience and my expertise with um, emerging artists, mainly actors and directors. And uh, so with that, I started the, um, you know, the teaching at USC as well as mentoring um, there's another college uh, called AMDA, the um, American Musical and Dramatic Arts uh, College of the Performing Arts in Hollywood that also called upon me and uh, to help in terms of the networking and business essentials of being an artist. And, uh, and that was something that was very interesting to me because I think basically when we graduate from college, we are taught to be artists, but we don't know the business of the art. And I think that that was something where I could share. And, and so, you know, that's, that's been happening quite a bit now in terms of the whole idea of education as well as mentoring. And um, that's really hit a, a, really, a really nice spot for me as I think of retiring and, and leaving, uh, you know, um, the legacy of Asian American work to the next generation. Yeah, I really appreciate that because I think most people don't. You're right. Like people get go to be an artist. You do your films or you write your screenplays, whatever you're kind of doing. But 
learning the business side is really valuable. Not only right. just learn how to sell yourself, but know Absolutely. how to the industry works. So what advice do you give uh, your students about the business side? I think in terms of the business side, it's really important that we learn how to tell our story. And again, you know, I'm saying our story, meaning your own personal authentic story, because a lot of times as artists, we play characters or we tell other people's stories, but we're not necessarily great at telling our own story. So that's really important. And once you open yourself up to telling your story uh, to, to other people, you know, whether it's a job interview or getting an agent or or, you know, uh, if you're trying to go to uh, another platform in terms of being a writer or, or a director, those, those ways of networking becomes very important because I think people want to see how you're able to communicate and collaborate. And, and that's really important for, for those people who want to take that leadership position as a writer, as a director, as a producer, um, it's totally different from that as, as that of a performer. And so, um, you know, d- just learning how to navigate um, the business by your own communication and being comfortable with yourself, I think is really important. Yeah, it's so that authenticity, like bringing it back and de- de- uh, deepening your understanding of yourself. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, there's, there's a lot of um, the, I guess the correct word is there's a lot of appropriation that is happening out there. And so how do you navigate? How do you talk about that? Uh, and, and the thing about it is that there's no one, you know, black and white answer. There's a lot of gray area in which we in which we navigate. And the thing about it is, how well can you actually navigate that? Um, you know, we were actually talking about this at a uh, USC affinity group uh, yesterday in the School of Dramatic Arts, and we wanted to have an AAPI affinity group. And so, you know, there's a lot of us thinking, okay, that would be great. But what happens if someone wants to start like a South Asian group some, or a Desi group, right? You know, sometimes the... the uh, the Desi experience is different from an Asian American experience, or, you know, the Filipino experience is different from the Taiwanese experience. So how is it that we bring together this affinity group or do we separate? And then what about all of our allies who are non-Asian who want to be part of this Asian American affinity group? You know, how do we, how do we deal with that? So I think the more that we can actually voice that, that, or, voice your perspective and and to be heard and to be included in it is very important although there is really no no black and white answer to this because the whole idea of of culture and equity and social justice it continually evolves every single day the language changes in terms of you know how we identify changes every day and and the key to that is how well you can navigate that yeah, and I'd like to go further into that. I think that's uh, an issue within the Asian American industry um, communities having separated groups because we don't want to be 
Asian American, Asian American Pacific Islander, South Asian, Southwest Asian, like there's always, it's just a separation, but we still need to come together. But if we don't separate, we can't deepen the conversation of what it means to be in those group, different groups. Right. So that's why I believe we, we have to take a both and approach mm-hmm. that, yes. Okay. So let's come together as, you know, the, uh, the AAPI uh, affinity group. And then, uh, you know, we will meet, you know, every so often within that, we will break that down. And so, uh, you know, any other groups that identify differently within the AAPI group, you know, can also meet separately. Uh, and then there, there might be times where, you know, um, when, when the allies also want to meet up, how is it that, that we are able to integrate and include the allies? Because again, you know, building community is very, very important, especially nowadays. And, and how is it that we are able to uh, align all of our goals together and, and lift each other up in, in a way where we celebrate, I guess, the, the different cultural um, aspects of our community, but then we also celebrate the commonalities. Mm. And, and, you know, and, and, and it gets larger and, and larger in terms of, you know, how do we integrate, um, you know, ourselves with the black community um, or African-American? We had that conversation too. It's like, you know, some, um, some people call themselves black and other people call themselves African-American. And so, you know, uh, who are we as Asian Americans to help to clarify that identification, right? And so mm-hmm. it is no, the, you know, the, each community has to identify as as their own. Um, you know, we were also talking about the LGBTQIA in terms of well, how do we how do we create that affinity group as well? Because there might be just you know um, uh, you know a group of, of of gay males who want to meet together or of of or lesbians and. And um, something very interesting came up is that out of the entire uh, School of Dramatic Arts at USC, only one person had identified themselves as non-binary. And we were saying, is that possible? Is that possible that only one person would identify as non-binary in, uh, in a school of, of dramatic arts of 500 people, of 500 students? And, and, and it came to the point, well, You know, that means that our work as faculty and staff uh, has has failed in a way in which those individuals do not feel safe that they can identify because we know that there are probably more people who are actually questioning or or are non-binary and um, don't feel safe coming out as so. And so uh, it was a very interesting aspect that we need to look upon and, and that we need to learn and um you know that's that's an important thing is that we as faculty also need to learn from the student body yeah well that uh the developing conversation about dei and equity and inclusion is what does that come to how do we how do we navigate that how do we uh not turn into a business but how do we put policy around that what are we doing for that those communities um, and developing those conversations, even for like Asian American um, men and Asian American women, very different topics. And what oh. we tell, when we don't have those conversations in that depth with those people, because um, it's always weird, like you don't want to make too much space for only men. It's like, and then it sounds feel weird, but at the same time, we still need to have that conversation of what we're going to do about it um, and make and deepen that 
that narrative. Right, right. And that was part of the conversation as well. Um, I think, uh, you know, many of the black males uh, in the school also wanted to feel like they needed to to come together to talk about, you know, uh, issues that are that are that pertain to black men, uh, you know, because of, of the lives that they lead 24 seven as as black men and and, you know, what is it that they face? So, you know, I, I think that there are so many um, so many perspectives and how do you how do you be inclusive of those perspectives, have those voices heard? And I think a lot of it deals with how is it that you can tell your story? We go back to the story. I think story is, is everything. Um, everything we do from you know film, TV, stage, books, visual arts, dance, um, you know, even this podcast is all about communicating a certain kind of story. And, and, and what is it, uh, you know, of the story, you know, you go to school, you learn about story, beginning, middle, end, or, you know, what is the emotional arc of, of, of the piece, that all that becomes so important. And how is it that we as people of color, we have, as Asian Americans, how do we put that story forth? And there's so many different ways in terms of uh, how it is that we do it. And I feel like as artists, you know, the best way um, to put our story forward is is by the art of storytelling, whether it is by film or, or TV or through a play um, or, or through a script. And and that becomes very important. And and those become, you know, part of the Asian American legacy. So as we build the canon of Asian American plays or Asian American film or Asian American television shows, you know, that that forms that legacy. And I think, you know, we talked a little bit or, or we're going to be talking a little bit about about history and impact. And that becomes really important in terms of, you know, what happened back in the in the 1940s when, uh, you know, the Japanese Americans were incarcerated. Right. And and who is going to tell those stories and how does that those stories continue, uh, you know, through the different generations so that so that we remember, you know, what what happened back in in in, in the 1940s, um, you know, much like the the way that, um, you know, I had created kind of like a, a docu musical about the Tiananmen Square uprising of 1989. Um, called Beijing Spring because the Chinese government is trying to erase what happened, and and a lot of um, Chinese students that I come into contact with, they have no idea, or they maybe heard a little bit, uh, you know, just an inkling about what happened in 1989, but but the Chinese government has literally erased that experience, uh, you know, out of the out of the history books, and and that's why. Um, Beijing Spring was was actually created, and so that yes, there is a way of remembering it, and um, and you know commemorating the the valiant effort of of those students who who fought for uh, you know quote unquote freedom or certain kinds of of freedom, and so you know that idea of storytelling becomes so important for us, and the more that we can. Uh, create all these different stories, I think that the, the, 
the Asian American history will make so much more impact in terms of the, in, you know, what, what we would call, you know, the, the entire history of, of, you know, America and how Asian Americans played a vital role in it. Mm. You're speaking my language right now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> You know, it's great because you perfectly transitioned to us where I wanted to go is arts, advocacy, and impact. So I think right. that's a really huge part. Not only does art reflect society, but it also changes society. And when we, and we recognize that, it's more than just, I feel like we don't, we don't, we definitely don't get enough history within the school system. And once we're out of the school system, we don't really go back. There's no, there's no, uh, in, in, incentive to go back to school for history in the general public. But I think uh, arts, film, television, plays, not only um, can record and, uh, not record, but like play back what history is and teach us in such an entertaining way. Uh, the Black Panther is called edutainment, right? Something you're going to educate. Right. right. Have an entertainment because you're going to want to come back for the entertainment, but still yeah. be educated. And so when you did your, um, when you did Beijing Spring, because even when I had heard your interview earlier, um, I don't know enough about Tenement Square. I know I've seen the pictures. I know what happened, but I, I didn't know what year it was. I don't know right. what the, the issues are. And so, um, you know, and it's definitely in, not in America, but I think that's, there's so much in America in Asian American history that Asians, Asian Americans have changed society. They've changed the community for themselves, but we don't know enough about it. So can you speak on um, what theater and storytelling do when, when we start to replay those back and teach ourselves uh, teach art to teach the next generation um, and what that does for you know uh, the conversation around Asian Americans right you know you know I think basically what what art does or you know theater uh, does is that you know it holds up a mirror right to to society and for a lot of us as Asian Americans uh, you know what we want to do as as Asian Americans, you know, again, as as artists, and and that we want to be able to, you know, tell tell our stories. That the basic thing about we as artists is that we are there to advocate for some kind of change by putting, uh, you know, by putting a you know a mirror up to you know, the, the community so that, you know, we can actually take a look at ourselves. Uh, it's also an opportunity for us to actually question what is happening in, in society. Because a lot of times, you know, when we're living life, we don't necessarily actually see it from the outside. You know, it's almost like, you know, uh, you know, stopping, stepping outside of the, of the picture and then looking in at the picture. And I think that's what artists actually give uh, the community or the audience um, an opportunity to, to, to do that we are actually um, looking at something like looking at the mirror you're kind of like stepping outside of it and, and looking and go okay look, look at the look at how it is that that we're living you know look at the inequities that, that, or, or the uh, injustice that is happening do you recognize that I mean, because when you're actually living it, you may not necessarily be experiencing it. But once you step outside of it and you observe it, then you go, oh, okay, now, now I see. And, and I think that that's what um, many of the Asian American artists, whether they know it or not, that, uh, you know, while they are being creative, they are also being forward thinking by by moving 
by moving a society just one step further in terms of actually looking at itself and, and, and having them have a different perspective of what they are seeing. Um, you know, I mean, you know, David, we're going deep. So, you know, even when you think of, you know, what's happening now with, with people, you know, getting vaccinated and, and all that, and, and, and we're talking about, well, you know, once maybe someone who is not being vaccinated, once someone in their family gets COVID and, and is hospitalized or, and, you know, maybe that's when they'll, you know, have that opportunity to say, oh gosh, maybe I should get vaccinated because now it's actually affecting you, right? And so, so what happens is that, you know, you have all these stories, but then you're saying, well, you know, this story isn't me, you know, this Asian American story isn't, isn't me. And, but it's not until you actually step outside of it and, and you look at it and you go, oh my gosh, you know, maybe this aspect of it is me, is my family. This is about my family, about, you know, some kind of struggle. Um, And so that's what we as artists do is that we actually uh, have our audience stop and actually take a look and, and say, hey, this is, or this could be your story. And, and this is how you can relate to it. That's how we as Asian Americans grew up, right? We grew up seeing, you know, TV shows that, that have, uh, you know, Caucasian people in it. And, and somehow we were connecting to it. And now, you know, maybe the opposite will happen and you'll see an Asian show. And then people are saying, well, you know, that's not me. That, you know, that's, that's the, but it's like, you know, we bring this dignity and, and humanity to, to it that maybe, you know, a non-Asian person would not have seen. Um, but, you know, that, that's the great aspect of it, uh, you know, in terms of art and, and how we actually relate to it. You're right. I think there's a, so much, so much still to be done. And that's the thing too, because there is not enough representation on screen, mostly within the writer's rooms, right? It's the writer's room, right. the directors, producers who are telling those stories. We don't really have enough of that. I think there's a responsibility of the next generation to take, take on a little bit more advocacy for those roles to change parts of society, part of the industry generally, right? Because right. that gives us more opportunities to make more, tell deeper stories, um, have more control over those stories. Because I feel like there's just we might see uh, Asians on screen, but sometimes it's still written by white people. I think that's becoming a problem. Um, right. Right. What do you see? that we could start moving towards like a better tomorrow, right? What do we, what do we, what can we do? And, 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 and part of that is um, where I'm coming to this question is that theater, especially the East West players has done so much to change like the theater industry. And when I look at East West players, it's like um, a goalpost because I see what East West players had, has, has done and still does do is really advocate for their, for Asian American stories in, across the board mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and develop those, really great but that's not what's happening within the hollywood industry um i think a part of it's because you can build your own theater company build your own plays and do them yourselves whereas hollywood kind of you're kind of beholden to a system that's already set in place so do you see what people can start doing now just to to move towards you know a better better hollywood you know i i do see that there is change that that is happening uh that there are more uh, directors of color. There are more writers of color. I mean, I was totally uh, uh, 
happy about um, you know Chloe Zhao winning the DGA, the, the Oscar for Best Director. Um, I you know I you know I signed an NDA uh, for a, a mm-hmm. video game that I just voiced a couple of days ago, but the writer was an Asian American woman. And it was like for a video game. And it's like, wow, you know, you always think that the video game is, is such a, a male world. And, mm-hmm. and yet she was, she was the writer and, 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 you know, she was there, you know, creating the character uh, with me as I was helping to voice it. And I thought, wow, you know, this is great. This is, this is happening. Um, and then there are many people that, that I know of from the theater world that are now going into the film and TV uh, world, um, you know, like Leah, Nan- Nan- Leah, Leah Nanako Winkler, uh, who wrote Kentucky as, you know, as a playwright, and now she writes for Netflix. And so, uh, you know, I, I think that, that there are some great things happening. Um, I also think by some weird way that, you know, there's a lot of... Um, shows that Netflix is is taking from from Korea, Taiwan and Japan dubbing it and then putting it on and in some weird way I think that that um that development of the audience somehow watching that you know like if Squid Games was number 1 in 90 countries um you know i'm i'm wondering whether hollywood is taking note of this and going hey you know uh netflix has has is onto something and maybe there is a way that they can help turn that um uh to monetize that and and to expand that business that you know asian american content is is big and it, it, it will only get bigger. And how do we get a piece of that pie by using, you know, the Asian American, uh, the Asian American story. And by that is, you know, hiring more people in, in, in that creative, uh, with that creative empowerment in terms of writing and, um, uh, and, and directing and, and producing, um, there's this uh, group called CAPE. I don't know whether you're familiar with CAPE, the Coalition of Asian Pacifics and Entertainment. And uh, maybe about 10 or 15 years ago, I was a member of CAPE, and, and these were Asian Pacific executives. And there were probably less than 100 people uh, that was part of this group. And I believe today there are more than 300 of, uh, of them. And so I, I do think that there is change happening, uh, perhaps not fast enough. Um, and, and I think that, you know, when, when you have these, you know, big blockbuster movies like Shang-Chi coming in and, um, you know, and, and, and these others, uh, uh, oh gosh, who is uh, that one actor, Benedict Wong in, in the Marvel mm. movies that that's coming that, you know, Eternals that, that all those yeah, movies. yeah, yeah. The mm. Eternals and Dr. Strange and that, right. that, you know, there, I think that there are things happening, albeit, on an international level, right? Mm-hmm. So the Asian American, Asian American, with the quotes on American, is still a little bit invisible. But I think that that it is it is coming along, especially when we have uh, you know great executive producers like um, Daniel Day Kim, 
you know, I think he's doing really great, uh, you know, from transitioning from actor into, into being an executive producer, which is really great. Um, Sandra Oh has done some, some great things as, as well, just in terms of all of a sudden she's playing not necessarily an Asian, but she's just playing an American role, which, which I think is, is, uh, you know, another, another milestone for, for, Asian American actors who just want to be an actor, um, mm-hmm. and so you know that becomes very important. But but at the same time, when uh, Sandra Oh is is in a is in a is headlining a movie, there has to be parents, and who are the parents? The parents are going to be Asian, and so you know that that becomes you know a really smart way in terms of how is it that that this becomes just you know part part of everyday life. And, and I think it is growing. Um, and I hope that, you know, the younger generation and, and, you know, individuals like you just, just continue to expand that, this, this, this knowledge that, that, you know, will just grow and grow and grow. And uh, so that we don't necessarily have to think of it as, okay, we're, we're advocating, we have to be activists and all that, that, that we, we just are. Yeah, I want to get past the um, having to do it because there isn't enough and just doing it because we want to do it. <laughs> um, right, right, right. Yeah, right. And I think there's a, I mean, I have a lot of thoughts on different things here that we just explained. But one of the biggest things is that, you know, having, you know, one thing was uh, talking about Squid Games is like, I think language justice is really important, right? Most of shows are either in foreign languages or in English. Um, you know, I think Netflix does a lot of English shows, which, you know, a lot of Americans get, but when you translate it and have it dubbed, like for me, even myself, like as much as I'll, I'll, I'll read the subtitles. Sometimes I'm multitasking and just wanting to listen, uh, especially like anime, anime, when it's dubbed, I'm able to listen and enjoy the show and still do it. Netflix is still getting my money <laughs> and my view. <laughs> so why not? Like even Squid Games, I, you know, I'll be honest, I watched it dubbed. It was easier for me to, you know, be at night. And some people are like, you know, we kind of, we're either tired, we don't want to read the show, want to watch the, watch the things, and it's not perfect. But I think at the same time, um, that's, a, there's, a, there's definitely a demographic of people who won't watch shows because it's subtitles. And right. so getting those people, uh, getting that audience brings it back in. I think that's why uh, shows like Squid Game did very well. And even, I think it was The Heist, uh, this TV show that they, it was in Spanish, but they dubbed it for every language. That's why mm-hmm. it did so well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also and being Asian Americans being, you know, so over 300 languages, uh, just in America, like you, you want, especially Asian languages, um, there's so much to be that you can't watch. Sometimes that you can't even watch because they don't dub it or subtitle in those languages. So if you started doing more, you get a bigger audience. Right. Um, especially right. if you have like shows, we want to do Asian American shows. Cause I think a lot of Asian cultures in Asia, don't understand Asian American culture because it right. doesn't get seen, right? So I right. think even if if we start to do stuff in Asian American uh, storytelling, we need to start dubbing it for those cultures, um, those those countries, so that people can kind of get a better understanding of what that is. I think it's just a, a part of the system that needs to start changing because um, we still, again, even like Squid Games is South Korean. We don't have Asian American shows or TV movies that often. It's usually even Shang-Chi. It might be in America at the beginning, but they're always going back to China, Singapore, you know, other countries, uh, which perpetuates that foreignness. Right. So I think there's more to be done there. 
Right, um, right, absolutely. So I'm curious, now I want to go back a little bit into uh, East West players. Now, when okay. did you get involved with East West players and then uh, your transition into becoming an artistic director? Well, you know, upon uh, graduation uh, from college uh, at USC, uh, my, uh, my senior advisor had told me, okay, Tim, you've been living in a bubble now for four years uh, you know, getting lead roles, uh, you know, in, in, in the plays there at USC and, uh, you know, learning and honing my craft. He told me that uh, when I graduate, the real world is going to be really different for Asian Americans uh, because there are not that many roles out there. And the roles that are out there are, you know, the stereotypical, you know, whatever, the gang member or, uh, you know, the, uh, the bus boy, uh, all that. And so, so he told me that I should probably continue my studies by going to um, East West Players that, that he had heard that there was, an, uh, at that time, an oriental theater company, uh, you know, called East West Players and that the artistic director was Mako who, uh, you know, who was a, a, you know, Academy Award nominee as well as a Tony Award nominee and, and that, you know, he was the artistic director there. So uh, I literally uh, went there, you know, right after I graduated and met Mako and learned at that time, East West Players was a dues paying organization. So with the dues paying organization, uh, I think it was $35 a month. Uh, that was basically to help pay for the, the rent, I guess, of the space, is that we could take the free classes that was offered by other artists in, in the group and that only those artists that were part of East West Players could actually audition, the, you know, the dues-paying audience. So, uh, so it was a dues-paying um, organization until about the late 80s when it became... You know, uh, anyone anyone could join, or auditions were open, and they did away with the uh, um, with the monthly dues, and and they they just started, uh, you know, having like tuition for classes and all that. But that's where I got started, and uh, basically was a performer. Um, the great thing is that now, through lived experience, I was watching you know, how Mako directed. I was watching how the box office worked. I was watching how they were hanging lights and, and all that. And so all that came into my psyche in terms of just being aware of what all the different aspects of running a theater was. Um, then in the late 80s, the whole, um, and you might be too young, David, but th there was the Miss Saigon controversy where in Miss, Sa Miss Saigon uh, opened in London, uh, starring Leah Salonga and Jonathan Price, and they were now coming to Broadway with the same actors in the leading roles. And the Asian American um, artists uh, picketed uh, Miss Saigon because they thought that they should have the chance to audition for the role of the engineer played by Jonathan Price, a white man, uh, and that and that the Asian Americans needed that opportunity to to audition uh, for that role 
uh, or or uh, actors' equity should not let that actor in. Uh, you know, and, and again, there there are all these uh, labor labor disputes that are happening, as well as those disputes about discrimination and race that that was happening. So I was a big part of of that uh, of that protest. And one of the things that the producer Cameron McIntosh, you know, mentioned that, that was in the New York Times is like, you know, if these Asian Americans are protesting this, they should go and do their own, their own, uh, you know, their own stories, their own plays. And so that's when I started. Okay, I want to learn how to be a director so that I can cast who I want to cast. And if I want to cast all Asians in in something that was not necessarily all Asian, I could because this is what you know Cameron McIntosh was doing. Um, but you know, long story short, everybody learned. Everybody learned from this, including Cameron McIntosh, because you know after that controversy, Cameron McIntosh cast the engineer uh, as someone who was Asian or part Asian, and as there were other aspects of say like Les Miserables opened that there were Asian Lea Salanga you know was able to play uh, eponym in Les Miserables and this other Filipina named Joan Amadia played Fantine in Les Mis so even Cameron McIntosh learned that you know there it is good business in terms of casting diversity uh, you know where where they saw that they could um, and and I think that that was very important. So that's when I learned how to to direct because then the artistic directors were giving me the opportunities to direct at East West Players. So then when the second artistic director, um, Noble McCarthy, stepped down due to health issues, uh, their board of directors, the East West Players board of directors, approached me uh, in terms of, you know, I was being referred by Noble McCarthy to, to take over that position as artistic director. Uh, a lot of people came forward, you know, and they were gonna help teach me in terms of, you know, how to fundraise because an artistic director also has to fundraise as well as, well as doing the creative aspect of, of the theater. And, and so that's what happened. And what the actors really wanted was to eventually move from a 99-seat theater to a professional contract, which was an actor's equity contract. And that's when we moved down to Little Tokyo in what, 1998. And, um, and I think that uh, that learning experience was, was, was great for me as well as for East West Players because East West Players was now on, on the national map, just in terms of, you know, it is possible you know, especially for a theater of color to have done it, it is possible to move from a 99-seat theater, which there were about 200 theaters in LA at that time that were 99-seat, and that you could move up to that professional level and pay the actor uh, a living wage as well as health benefits. Uh, and, and that was the real important thing, uh, at, at least for me, is that actors could, could get a living wage even though it was barely a living wage, but mm. uh, but that's another part of you know the, the artist's life, right? The artist has to have different jobs at at different production companies, and and that pieces together a a career. But having health insurance was also really important. Uh, you know, that's probably more important than than the actual uh, you know living wage at the time. 
So um, that's how I got started at at East West Players, and it's it's been a part of my life. Even after I've I've left in 2016, I am still connected uh, with Snehal Desai, who's the current artistic director uh, there, as um, you know, as well as many of the season subscribers who supported East West for a long time, and 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 the artists, of course, I'm I'm still in contact with. So, uh, so it's been a very, very nice journey, uh, you know, East West Players has. Wow. Uh, that's really incredible. I have not actually heard uh, that part of the story. I've heard bits and pieces, but to hear how it developed from that 99 seat theater to something that's over 200 seats right now. Right, right. right. Yeah, it's 240 yeah. seats. Uh, that's incredible. And, and how, you know, giving, like making the living wages and health benefits, I hadn't heard that part even. I think that's, that is really important because that's sustainability uh, for those actors to keep going, for the company to keep producing more and feeling like they're uh, putting back into the community with what they can do. Um, I want to take a quick step back into the, um, the, the protest and the, those advocacies. I think we don't see that very often uh, anymore. I've seen in history, I've seen it um, a couple different times. I think there was another one for uh, a couple maybe early 2000s for another another show. Um, but I, I want to hear more Asian Americans protesting, standing up for something or standing um, against something. And we don't really hear that. And what, right. did, yeah, what did that do? Because I feel like that sparked a new imagination to, to, to do something, right? To do to be to direct your own thing, right? So, yeah. right. So the thing about it is that I think it was really important that the community at large support the protests. That it's not necessarily just the artists, because what happens is that when the artists protest, they actually put their careers on the line, right? So that they know that you know. They that Cameron McIntosh will most the the producer of Miss Saigon will more than likely never cast any of these people that are you know protesting. I mean, you know, the pictures were in the New York Times, so you know you could see who was protesting. I mean, B. D. Wong was one of the lead protesters there. David Henry Wong, the playwright, lead protest. So you know, again, you know, I don't think B. D. Wong has been in a Cameron McIntosh show. Uh, you know, since that protest, but B.D. Wong is doing fine, you know, thank you very much. So, so, uh, so, so it's, it's very hard for the artists to actually put themselves on the line because they themselves may get blacklisted as to never work again. And, you know, if other producers saw that, okay, they caused this kind of trouble, you know, so, so it was very important for the community to actually stand up. And I think that there were some really smart-minded professors on race from UCLA and USC who actually got into the mix and say, you know, this is, this is appropriation. This is what is wrong about Miss Saigon. And, and albeit, j just know that I have a lot of actor friends and colleagues and people that went through East West Players that have gone to Broadway in Miss Saigon. And we totally respect what it is that they do because Miss Saigon, every time Miss Saigon is done, it employs 27 Asian Americans, you know, giving them a production contract, which at that time was something like $1,200 a week and health benefits, 
right? So, you know, you got to think as an actor, okay, this is what the play does, right? You yeah. know, and, yeah, and right, it's a job, and, and it's basically, it's about, uh, you know, it's Madam Butterfly, right? In terms mm-hmm. of the, you know, the white savior comes and saves the, you know, the Asian woman and, and all that. So the themes, you know, you know, what do the themes represent? But again, this is, this is a job. And so, so we knew what those actors who were in Miss Saigon, what they were fighting uh, or you know, what they were dealing with. And at the same time, there was a lot of us who were protesting it, you know, uh, about the labor issue. It was the labor issue about it. We were not necessarily judging it on its content, you know, because the content is if you like that, go, go see it. If you don't like it, don't go see it, right? So, but, but it was basically the labor issue of, Asian Americans not having the opportunity to audition for the lead role, um, you know, which was played by a, a white man. And I, and I think that that's where a lot of the confusion happened because there was a lot of confusion about the themes and then there was a lot of confusion about the actual labor, labor issue. But it, it was big. The show was actually canceled and Actors' Equity, the union, actually backed their actors, which was great. But then once they canceled, then the the technical unions and all these other unions uh, started to go against actors' equity because now not only were they not you know uh, employing actors, they were now not employing all the backstage actors, which were probably three times as many people as those people on stage. So you know, and and they knew that you know Miss Saigon. Um, uh, the creators of Miss Saigon were the same creators of Les Mis, which was a mega musical. And here we and here Broadway was canceling a musical just because of a labor issue. And and so it's like, okay, well, you know, let's try to solve that labor issue. And what they did is that Miss Saigon came back to Broadway, but that Jonathan Price's contract would only be for nine months. And after the nine months, because he was already engaged, after the nine months that they would cast an Asian American on Broadway for the rest of the run of Miss Saigon um, for the role of the engineer. So that was kind of like the, the takeaway for that. And, and it did make, you know, a couple of other people, um, you know, famous, uh, you know, just because they, they you know, that... Um, I mean, the play Miss Saigon is still the play Miss Saigon, whether you like it or or not. And, but it does employ 27 uh, Asian Americans every time that show is mounted. So um, I don't know how you feel about that. You know, it's 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 one of that that that's a push and pull. And and again, you know, our, our conversation at the very beginning is how well do you navigate these conversations? You know, knowing that that it gives jobs to Asian Americans, but at the same time, if you totally uh, you know, protests, uh, you know, the, the production, you know, what does that mean? And, and how do you, how do you remedy this, this, if not Miss Saigon, then what? And, 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 and what is it that, that we do, you know, and then you talk about Miss Saigon, Miss Saigon was totally made by, um, or created by, uh, non-Asians. So, you know, how much of that is, you know, again, appropriated. But then we have a lot of shows that are appropriated. You have Porgy and Bess that was written by the Gershwins. You know, is that appropriated? And that's a story about, you know, that's the African-American story, supposedly. And so, 
there's a lot of things in our history that that is questionable. And so mm-hmm. how is it that we move ahead and how, how is it that we advance? And that's where I think that uh, I would say modern day uh, advocate, um, artists, modern day artists and advocates are, uh, you know, how do we move that forward to create change? Yeah, that's a lot of history that I didn't know about. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. No, and Miss Saigon's, uh, I think we should, well, I think a part of it is that we don't know this history. I I don't I didn't know enough of this history. I know a, a good handful of Asian American entertainment, uh, music, and music and television history, but not ne- not necessarily everything. But I think most of us uh, Asian Americans don't even know the entertainment industry. We see it today, but we don't really go back. Like even mentioned Mako and Nobu, and like I, because I've gone through the archives and watched. I've seen so much Mako and Nobu in right. so many different plays, and they're incredible. I wish I could uh, speak to them today, but mm-hmm. um, those are the people who we just don't know and it's and this for miss saigon it was so it sounds so messy because that's the that's the issue that's people don't want to even try to touch it because it's so messy you start picking up one thing it breaks right. things down it tears communities apart because the actors don't um they think it's about them and it's not about them um it's it's a whole issue and i still see i kind of still see it today and it's a weirder conversation because i do think there is that there's a lot of people even i've talked to it's like they don't want to say something because they are looking for that job me i'm i go i come from that political uh, advocacy activist background in new york it's just like um if i don't say something it's nothing's going to change and i don't care if i you know i can risk my job but at the same time we gotta if i don't i can risk that job for that one person i probably don't want to work with that person <laughs> right 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 um, so like, what are we, how are we doing it for even just the next generation? Even if it's not for me, it's for the next generation and people to do more. Um, so having, having a voice, standing up for something, talking with the community. Cause I even hear like uh, for all American girl, uh, Margaret Cho, even the Asian American community did not support that at all. Um, mm-hmm. And that's why it kind of stopped at the first season. I recently just watched it and I thought it was incredible. My grandmother watched it. She's like, this is great. <laughs> um, <laughs> It's so funny to see represents with the grandmother character, and um, and so we need more voices like that to to say something. And I think the other conversation now is too is, um, you know, it's not even about uh, white men or white people telling our stories. It's actually uh, becoming this thing of other who's what kind of Asian is telling this type of story. Because um, I've seen shows that are about Japanese Americans who are not written and told by Japanese Americans. And it doesn't make sense to me. I'm like, you're mm-hmm. not, that's not the story it is. And so I think that comes even in another layer of like what, who, who's really telling those stories, who gets the ability to tell those stories because how they're told resonates more with that community when you do it. Um, right, right, right. There's that part of the conversation is, is still developing, but I think there's just uh, needs to be louder voices, younger voices too, because you know the next generation is really seeing they're going to have to take up whatever's being passed down. Right. Um, so what are we doing today to think about building affinity groups, building um, uh, groups within ourselves to have more more power within ourselves and and talk about these issues right right um, okay well let, you know let me ask you this question okay let yeah. me interview you for for a couple okay. minutes here yeah. so so you know because you know you you from the younger generation and, and being an artist and an activist that okay so so let, let's say okay let's take a real life uh uh thing that is happening so farewell my concubine a very very famous book 
and movie, right, uh, is going to Broadway as a musical. And the, uh, the book writer is a Chinese-American named Kenneth Lin. Uh, he wrote, um, oh, he was on uh, staff for, oh gosh, what was that? Kevin Spacey, where he played the president. Uh, House of Cards. House of Cards. Thank you. Uh, so uh, he was a, a head writer on, on House of Cards. So he's writing the the book to the music to the musical. But uh, Jason Robert Brown, a very celebrated and accomplished Jewish composer, is doing the music to Farewell, My Concubine. And so it's gonna it's gonna be on Broadway, and and I'm just wondering. You know, they're having a lot of focus groups, the the producers are, in terms of how is it that we get buy-in from the community in terms of this. So so it's better than Miss Saigon. It's not like an all-white team coming in and, you know, we're going to, you know, produce uh, this play about, you know, a Chinese opera actress. You know, there's, a, you know, there's kind of like a, a, a gay storyline that, that comes through that. Um, but, you know, Jason Robert Brown is not Asian, but do you feel that by the producers reaching out to the community, that that is something that helps with the buy-in of, or, or support of the project? Or, or do you think that, uh, you know, we, we need, we need to find, uh, I guess more, authentic representation of of the stories that are you know that that that's going to be done um Mm. you know what i mean i mean like like oh god john chu and in the heights you know he had the opportunity to direct in the heights but in the heights is a you know a latinx you know story but then the African-Americans got after John, John Chu and Lin-Manuel Miranda because there wasn't enough African-Americans, uh, you know, in, in, in Washington Heights in, in terms mm-hmm. of the actual. And so, I don't know. It, it, it's, yeah. yeah. How is it that, that you, in terms of the next gen, you know, artists and activists, you know, how is it that you navigate these conversations? Yeah, uh, great question. Um, I think the thing going back is is thinking about who has the power over over the story right Mm -hmm. so kenneth is writing the book but if jason right uh, is writing the the musical it's like does kenneth tell jason how much the music matters and what maybe the themes and dialogue are or is jason telling him Mm -hmm. um it's who has the power who has the money who's producing who's directing um i think because if in like a showrunner's room, like uh, if there's an Asian um, showrunner, they still tell the writers what to do, the staff writers. They don't really have a f- huge say. Um, they can pitch, but the showrunner has the final say. Mm-hmm. So in a theater, uh, I'm not sure the theater dynamics, but whoever has that, that power to uh, build in those themes, that's what matters. Um, now, I think for something like this, it's specifically for the producers reaching out to the community to get the buy-in. I think what would be better is if Jason needed to step down and gave it to somebody else or find somebody mm-hmm. um, who, who could tell the story because then you don't have to convince the audience. The audience is already convinced. 
right? So mm. instead of having to make them like, please go watch the show, you should do it, even though this, it's like, no, we don't have to even do an even though. It's just, oh, this is what it is. We're going to go watch it. Um, it's kind of in the same situation with Don um, Chu. It's like, well, if I, mean, I, I like In the Heights, when I watch it point blank, I, I watched it and enjoyed it. You know, I'm not a, I'm not the biggest musical fan in, in theater, but I love good performances. I love all that. I will watch a musical and I, I enjoy those when I'm not mm -hmm. like a fanatic. Um, but what I could have seen um, change is that if you didn't, if you had uh, Latin, Latin, Black or Latinx um, director, because that is a film so they ha they have the most control it's not that jason uh jason john had a bad vision or didn't know or didn't couldn't do it right it's that if you have someone from that community put in they're going to do just as good as john chu but they're going to have a broader experience from the latinx or black community because that's not necessarily him right lived experience living there being tapped in with the latinx community you're going to know what they want uh, as as an Asian American, Jap fifth generation Japanese American uh, mixed person. I'm tapped in with different communities than someone else would be. And so to see uh, someone who's not Japanese American or mixed um, telling Japanese American stories, they might get the surface level, maybe even a second level for being Asian American. Right. But that depth, psychological family dynamics. Like I've lived that. I know what my grandmother's house looks like. I know what my grandmother's um, sensibility and uh, does to my father, and what that my father does to me, going right. back all the way towards the war. Right, because right, I right. lived it. So as much as um, John Chu might be able to direct a Japanese American story, it's a good thing. But at the end of the day, the storyteller and being able to bring that extra layer of um, depth. Is, is kind of lost, not on their part, uh, at their fault. It's just that they didn't have that lived experience. So I think moving forward, it really is who can tap in with that community, find someone who can, um, who has that lived experience to bring more. It's um, one of the reasons why uh, Crazy, Rich, Crazy, Crazy Rich Asians is written by, was first written by a white man, then they brought Adele Lim in and she changed right. everything, right? right? But then that second, uh, when they did the, the sequel, sequel yeah. she right she was not she was offered one eighth of the pay of the other white writer right. so she had to leave who are they going to have to come back in right to represent that story right she's chinese chinese american to tell a chinese story um that makes more sense if someone who is not they might get the story like a, a structurally story but mm -hmm. it's like if a director comes in and doesn't and sees um the the set decoration is not right. They might not know, right? It's because they right. didn't see that thing. I have a very specific memory of uh, a rice, <laughs> a rice measuring cup, being a, a specific type of metal <laughs> from my yeah. grandmother's house. And when we went to plastic, I was like, ah, this is not the same. And right. but having that, <laughs> just those, it's those minimal things. But then when that, when the community is going to watch it, they're going to see it, or they're going right. to see that's wrong, right? And I think um, even with uh, Mulan, people really saw it and broke it down and like that's not right that's not there why does she have geisha makeup on like it doesn't make it. right um, right those are the differences that i'm going to see and i want people to think about advocating for authenticity and and right. representation from that community right? i wouldn't want someone who's cambodian who's already a marginalized community within the asian community be either represented on screen as an actor who's not cambodian 
or directed by somebody who or written by people who are not Cambodian at all or didn't have any say in it because then it doesn't um, fit right. Now you can have someone to come in and um, help advocate that story, tell that story a little better. Like if someone who's not Cambodian uh, or is a writer talks to someone who's Cambodian, has them a part of the screenplay, not just do one interview and tell me, it's like really be a part of that um, development of the story and then give them the proper credit for story, uh, for story editor um, to come in and do that. Then it builds that inequity, um, the equitability of that person now has a story credit who can write stories, might not be a screenwriter because that's a craft, but be able to tell a story in that way, I think is very valuable, uh, not mm -hmm. only to that community, but to the story being uh, really representat uh, representative of that those people. So I think that's really important to think about as we move forward. Right, right. Totally agree. Totally agree. Hey, do you, um, uh, have you heard of this writer named Doreen Kondo? No, I haven't. She is a, oh gosh, I forget what her exact title, but, but she is in ethnic studies at USC. She's a professor, but she's also a playwright. And she wrote a play about the effects of the Japanese American incarceration on future generations, that it is in their DNA and that they suffer trauma, like the Sansei and the Yonsei suffer trauma that their you know grandparents had in camp, even though they they never experienced camp themselves, that somehow it's in their DNA that they have some kind of trauma from that. And uh and her play talks about it and it is so when people see it they they like agree with it they go yeah i you know i actually i actually have you know these kinds of um you know experiences even though i've never been to camp and but it's just because my 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 grandfather or great grandfather experienced it it was like it's just amazing in, in, in the way that she tells the story. And I don't know what um, it's called, uh, but but it is something where it is actually in your DNA that, uh, you know, it has traveled through the generations. That, that's fascinating. Yeah. So that, that, yeah, that just reminded whatever that you said just reminded yeah. me about that. A hundred percent. I think I will go find it and put it in the show notes, but um, I watch everything to, so I can find <laughs> about the camps. Um, right. My grandmother is still alive. And I talk to her all the time and I see, I see what that changed was. I think for me, the biggest thing is I thought I was a white man for 25 years right. because my father had said, if no one, if no one ever asked, you're not Asian, you're definitely not Japanese because they don't right. want to be associated with the Japanese community. And so it was mm -hmm. a very direct change and he didn't, and he didn't have, he had his own problems with his own family and he was separated from my Japanese side for so long. Um, oh. And that's a part of it. And I think that and every family is different, but. Right. You know, I still see I still see the similarities. I know a lot of other Japanese Americans who are in similar situations. It's like they didn't associate with the Japanese American community. Didn't get it. My I know right. because my grandmother's still alive, she's still in touch. She I mean I'm a ghost say, so I'm fifth generation. She was um so she was already a sansei. And so she gets a little bit but but seeing that intergenerational generational trauma get passed down to me, uh, whether directly or indirectly, because I know it happens to me. I know it happens to other Asian Americans for different reasons, mm -hmm. right? whether it's refugee, um, refugee trauma, immigration trauma, 
um, those get passed down for people. And so I think that's another reason why to think about one, who's telling that story, because my trauma is different than your trauma and right. your generational trauma is different. But then um, being, and that brings another layer of depth into your writing and direction. Absolutely. How you're doing that. So I think that's the biggest part. Um, and then gener which generation? So I've seen Japanese Americans who are second generation and first generation try to tell the, the camp story. And it doesn't mm -hmm. make any sense. It's like, it's losing that layer. It's like nice to see. And you can see like, oh, look at camp and visually it looks okay because mm -hmm. they can get some references, but that storyline gets lost or, or overwritten by some other fictionalized story. It doesn't make any sense. Right. And so, and I've seen plays from uh, plays and movies from Japan doing Japanese American internment. I'm like, it looks good. It's so close, but it's not. Right. And so <laughs> it, it, <laughs> it's like, oh, I loved it because they did a big production about it. But, you know, they made every white character um, the villain. Like every white character is mean, except for this one white lady. But like, that's not, that's just not true. It wasn't true the whole time. So, you know, whatever Asian American ethnicities or any ethnicities, really, that's what it really, I think the advocacy for authenticity um, gives that extra layer. And uh, not only good press, but also the lack of bad press. Because <laughs> right. as much as In the Heights was so good uh, in itself, I felt really bad that it got such terrible press afterwards be just because of um, uh, color discrimination. And right. it didn't need to have that. It, if it didn't have that part and it had someone who was representative and did it right, it might, wouldn't have gotten that bad press and would have stuck the landing very well. Right, and right. no one would have to backtrack the producers and PR. I'm like, oh, that's we have right. to fix this. Yeah, so that's like, right. Fix it early, right? Just do it right. there. You so, so the fixing early is 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 an aspect where you know, again, you know, if if there was more conversation with with the community, uh, you know, about it, with say with the Washington Heights community, uh, you know, regarding this, that that you know, uh, I think it's Disney, right? Disney would have. Disney would have, you know, maybe thought about these things, you know, a lot sooner as opposed to, okay, the show is already in the can. Now let's see what we can do, you know, about that. And, um, and you know, and I'm sure that Lin-Manuel Miranda had a lot of authority over the casting and the look of, of, of things. And maybe that was a blind spot for him because, you know, he wanted to concentrate so much, uh, you know, in terms of the misrepresentation of the, of the Latinx community that, you know, that the other communities were not included. And yeah. so, you know, but, but, you know, I think he owned it. He, you know, he, he, he did own that, uh, you know, in, in interviews afterwards, but, but yeah, it, it did not make, you know, the, the kind of money that Hamilton, you know, has made, right. uh, you know, well, for him. And if Lin-Manuel Miranda had another collaborator who was a different, um, of that community of the Washington Heights community at all, at all. Um, mm -hmm. they could see that, right. Then you have two people playing more in more depth instead of right. someone who might have, they can talk to each other. They, there's a shorthand. I think that's why Asian Americans come to other Asian Americans. We don't, you don't have to explain, um, the first layer of your traumas or your first layer of your history. I already kind of get it. We can go a little bit further right. into what that is. Right. I right. think that's when you add more people, of uh, those communities telling that story, you get this richness of what that is instead of just one layer. And then because one person has the power, um, they're going to have those blind spots. So how do we add in other people to give other perspectives? Right. right? And that, that gives it more. Right, 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 right. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, and you know, John Chu is is moving on. He uh, he is directing now the musical, the film version of the musical Wicked, which cool. is another huge, huge, uh, you know, musical. Uh, and but you know, he'll get to tell the story of you know the backstory of the Wizard of Oz. You know, <laughs> so, cool. so the fact that you know a Chinese American filmmaker is is actually you know getting the opportunity to do that that you know that's. Uh, you know that that's really great for for his career, and 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 I think that you know there's a lot of other you know directors of color that hopefully will ride on his coattails, saying that you know this is possible, that you know this can be done. And that's another part of the conversation that we won't get into today because I want to do a couple other questions and I want to get you out of here. But um, you know, uh, people of color directing shows that are historically white, right? Mm-hmm. We have Wizard of Oz. Uh, the Little Mermaid, Cinderella, like, what does that look like? What is that conversation? Is that, you know, it's not necessarily appropriation, but I think, you know, like um, a Romeo and Juliet, you know, having, it's going to be played on forever and it's going to be repeated and repeated in different ways and variations that uh, you can have. Now we can have the ability to tell it a little bit differently with a little mm-hmm. more uh, color into it. So, no, that's just another, uh, another layer of the conversation of who gets to tell those stories and what does it mean when uh, people of color are telling stories are historically white um just another layer but right absolutely yeah now um the theater industry i feel like they're, they're in alignment with the film and television industry especially to see so many great actors come from theater because they have that practice on stage um but i think the theater industry generally has um a leg up within diversity uh from an outside perspective especially within um communities being able to build it themselves it's kind of like independent filmmaking where you get to tell the story you build it yourself then you can move up and keep keep providing that um but i also see the theater industry being self kind of self-sustaining especially like east west players it's pretty much self-sustaining in itself to keep creating more new stories and i know there's a new season coming up uh recently and one just ended so mm-hmm. there's more um what what it's going to take to get the film and television industry to start taking um, the theatrical plays and putting them into um, movies and TVs. I see they're doing with in the Heights and, uh, and Hamilton and now wicked, but you know, Asian American storytelling has been going on in plays for decades and I've seen old archives and I really want to see those being brought more brought out because not everybody can go to the theater um especially if they're in if you're in los angeles you can go to east west players but if you're anywhere right. else right 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 so right. where are you gonna go see those things i love the archives i'm thankful for like um uh, uc santa santa barbara and places that i've, I've seen archives from um but those i feel so much more connected to those because they're asian americans in those leading roles but also the writers and directors in those so right right yeah do you see that well you know just just in terms of the actual uh filming of theater productions uh you know when i left when i left east west players there were there were several ideas of kind of like a a streaming service uh or or something like netflix but for theater productions and that was going to start where you know they were going to yeah you know why not uh, you know, uh, videotape, uh, you know, some of the East West Players productions or, um, you know, any any productions that happened at like Berkeley Rep or Seattle or uh, or the Guthrie Theater in, in Minneapolis. And so I don't know 
where we are on that because I know that COVID happened and, you know, everything kind of like just, just died. And so, so just in terms of like, like how they did um, Hamilton, that they actually filmed the stage production as opposed to making a movie production of Hamilton, that that was, that was all thought of in the books in terms of, okay, this is, this is how we're going to do it. This is how we're going to monetize it. So it'll be like on a streaming kind of um, aspect for, uh, for, for that. In terms of, you know, some of the archival shows that East West Players has done and, and frankly, you know, any other theaters have done, you know, I, I think that that is, that is an idea to be, to be, to be thought of, uh, you know, especially when it comes to, um, you know, like if, if your interest is the, uh, the, uh, you know, the, the, the camps back in the forties, East West did over, gosh, I would say a dozen and a half plays about the, the, uh, the incarceration. And so, and, and all from different perspectives, you know, from, from, from kids, from, from, from a pilgrimage to Manzanar to, to all of these, you know, different, different things. And um, I think that it would be great that if, if there was some kind of a, um, I guess some angel that would come and donate money for the creation of these, of these films. Um, and of course, you know about uh, VC, right? Visual communications. Of course. Um, you know, you know, I, I think that they are now through, I think they got a big grant from Sony where they're actually archiving all of their shows now so that it can mm-hmm. be, uh, you know, monetized and, rented and or streamed and i think that um you know maybe they they can have you know the the opportunity to to actually film some of these um film some of these these plays that that have been you know in in the archives i i think that's a that's a great idea i think for the most part hollywood wants like new content because they want to be able to own the content you know without having any kind of um I don't want to say baggage, but without any other kind of connection to who actually owns it, because that, because when a play is done, the playwright still owns the play. Mm-hmm. When a film script is done, it is actually purchased by, you know, and, and, and it is the film company that actually says, okay, this is how much authority the playwright can have or will have because there are all these ties and incentives in terms of the money, right? That, that you know, you will still get X percent of box office and, and all that, but basically they own the, the property. Um, and yeah. Yeah. That, that's my knowledge is that they actually own the property, uh, which is why sometimes there's a different person that is actually writing the film script to, mm-hmm. to the actual project. So um yeah, it's it's a little bit different, uh, you know. And I'm sure that there's a lot of like legalese uh, things uh, about that. So no, that makes that makes sense. Thank you. Uh, I don't know that clarity, but yeah, I think you know I want to that those dozen and a half uh, plays. You know, I've definitely seen yeah, probably maybe three or four of them. Um, right. But it's like you know they're they might be lost to ages. I hope there there's there's some sort of recording on some VHS somewhere. Oh yeah. Oh no. I'm yeah. I mean yeah. I think I think East West records it all. But you know yeah. I hope the VHS is not you know 
disintegrating somewhere. Uh, you know, and I, I think that's why, you know, with, with VC there, you know, maybe VC can actually help out East West players uh, since they're in the same building, um, you know, in terms of trying to uh, restore or to save some yeah. of these archives. And a lot of the archives actually um, uh, are at the UCLA uh research mm -hmm. library so uh yeah so anything from 1965 to i believe 1992 is held at ucla cool so cool you know so, so valuable and yeah, yeah we need some more angels and once we get some money we'll be able to help with that for sure exactly um, exactly yeah um what do you think would keep the uh, asian american entertainment industry sustainable because uh, i feel like right now it's 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 always been this start stop Kind of way now it's there's a little bit more momentum of things mm -hmm. coming in um but do you see something that keeps us sustainable um you know future? because i am here uh you know uh, now that i'm teaching at usc and at amda and i see the number of asian american artists that are now expanding and growing uh you know from the time where you know i was the only asian american kid in in uh you know my bfa program to now where there's you know 10 to 15 and and even more depending on what school uh, uh you go to that uh, that have asian americans that are actually in the the drama program or the school of cinematic arts at at usc is when you look at when you look at the school of cinematic arts say at usc they are primarily uh Chinese, Korean, and Indian. And uh, so you see a lot of Asian faces there. So I, I think that just in terms of the producers, directors, and script writers, I, I think that they're coming up. And, and again, having the amount of networking and sensitivity and to have the, the, the whole idea of being able to talk about this and navigating this just like how how like you navigate the the whole idea of of arts and uh activism uh together i i think that 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 becomes really important so uh so i think you're right you're you know talking to the younger generation and and, and to the youth about it you know this is what we need to talk about this is what we need to consider that it's not necessarily just telling the story, but it's telling your story that is really important and your authentic story or the authentic story that that becomes really important. And if, and if that's a way that we can get that to the younger generation, especially, you know, in terms of Asian American community or, or people of color, that that becomes very important and setting the groundwork for the future. That becomes very mm -hmm. important. Right. So, yeah. you know, I don't know. It's like I can't just become an actor. I just want to become an actor because I want to sing and dance. That's not you know, I don't think that's that's it anymore, because, you know, then there then actors will be a dime a dozen because they can sing and dance. But to actually have an actor that actually says something and means something and can actually advance community, then that's something different. And, and, and that make that makes you as an artist purposeful. It's so funny. I was trying to transition to that that question. It's like, how do you become an actor or creative, um, and still advocate? Like, what are some of the challenges and like a purpose, a why 
um, you did you work for or you did artistic director for East West Players. That's another layer of your career that you're Correct. not only aligned but also half at least more than half of your brain space, time, efforts going there. What do you see those challenges being for people who um, are actors or creatives now who don't know how to start into that advocacy? Uh, going further into the public space, you know, especially writers, they don't come into the public so much right. um, and say things all the time, but because they're worried about getting the next job or getting their first job and not being problematic or a ch- uh, person that just advocating. Right. Um, what are some of the challenges that you had to overcome um, to make that happen for yourself? I mean, I think that's why you have to be really solid in terms of who you are. I feel like I've lived three lives. Um, so my first life was, you know, as an actor slash waiter, uh, for like the first five or six years of my life. And so again, you know, this is, I was an emerging artist. Uh, you know, I, I feel like, yeah, I did some commercials. I did some guest spots. I did some plays. Uh, you know, so I had to have my, 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 feet in in you know all these different pools of 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 jobs so that i could create an income that was enough for me to survive right and and that included you know waiting tables and so so that was that was one aspect of it but it wasn't until miss saigon that gave me a purpose that told me to you know get off my ass and i could actually be a lot more impactful as a director because I could make a difference in the way that things were casted and in the way that things were presented on stage. So that's when I sort of learned without going to college to get my MFA in directing because I was observing it at, at East West Players. That was my education and that became my, my second career where was, I was actually getting a single paycheck from East West Players for 23 years. Um, and uh, and and that was what my impact was in terms of our mission to to uh, you know promote the Asian American uh, story. So so that was the second. The third was when I left East West and I wanted to see what the next chapter was. And for me, it was more of a teaching and mentoring chapter, uh, which was really great. But again, you know. I have to piece together a living now, you know, in my 60s. Yes, I'm over 60. That, that yes, okay, so I work at USC. I work at AMDA. I do voiceover. I still direct plays. So, you know, all, I have, you know, 10 to 15 different jobs, uh, you know, a year in the last five years since I left East West. That pieces together a career, but I feel like, Everything leads to a uh, a mentoring and and sharing of information of lived experience now to those of the next generation because yes you're right there is still so much to be done but it it is being in that mindset still of being forward thinking that I think is really important but now I have to. Uh, uh, share this with the next generation in order to move everything forward. Mm. Right. Wow. And, and, a, and yeah, yeah, and that next generation now needs to own it mm-hmm. and continue. 
Yeah, I think that's that's the fight that we have to take up the mantle of just saying, well, you know, people have done it before. We have to, and we're we're going to be thankful and grateful for, um, you know, people like yourself, the legacies who who've changed the industry. But what who what are we doing now, and how are we right. continuing that fight more right. than just let me make my film? <laughs> right, right. Abs- that, yeah. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. Yeah, it's it, it's much more than yeah. Let me make my film. It's like what am I going to say now with the film? And uh, and and how do you use that newfound celebrity when you launch the film, in terms of what it is what is it that you're going to say, uh, you know, when you have that opportunity to be in front of a camera or a microphone, and 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 again, mentoring the next people, right? Mentoring people and sharing mm-hmm. sharing that information because it's not a you know if I'm winning you can't win it's I'm winning you can win too let me help you get there right. Um, and a part of like this podcast is like learning from yourselves um, and are the legacies who are do, who've done things for so many long for so many years uh, to learn to what we're doing now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we take this we're all volunteers here, so we want to make sure that we're still mentoring and sharing. Even if I'm just two steps ahead, one step ahead, somebody else can learn something. Absolutely, I think that's as long as we're continuing that cycle of education uh, in some way and mentorship. That's I think that we need. That's right. That's right. Absolutely correct. Well, I want to leave with a couple of last minute questions. Um, you, you are yourself a legacy in my mind, uh, <laughs> a lot of people, and you've left, left so many legacies for us to follow, but is there a legacy that you want to leave behind? You know, I, I think, uh, you know, just the idea of the Asian, and then I will, I will quote, you know, put in quotes, American, just the idea of the Asian American story, I think is, is really important. Uh, you know, the fact that, the fact that, uh, you know, you mentioned that you were Gose, is that right? Fifth mm-hmm. generation? It's like, mm-hmm. it's just mind boggling because we are still fighting the fact that we, uh, uh, or you, you know, can be considered a foreigner by just by looking at 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 what you look like, right? And, and and whereas you know there are some other people that are that that look white that they are like first generation, second generation, but yet they they appear more American than you do. So I think you know in in terms of a legacy, you know I would like to leave that legacy that we brought up the the Asian American story. Uh, you know, through East West Players and East West Players, I believe, is celebrating its 56th anniversary, uh, you know, and 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 that and, and the fact that we are, uh, you know, emphasizing or billboarding the the Asian American story, I think, is is really important. And and to tell you the truth, you know, there are some other there are some other organizations that that are that are having to deal with this. I mean, you know, the JACCC. Uh, is having to deal with, yeah, there is the, uh, you know, the the fourth and fifth generations now, and those of mixed heritage, you know, you know, how is it that that their story is being told? <clears throat> Same thing with the um, National Museum, you know, that that you know there are, there are so many exhibitions to cover now, you know, it's uh, that that you know you wish that the uh, that the National Museum where it was, you know. 10 times larger than what it is uh, just because there are so many different stories. I mean, you know, I was there when they were doing, you know, their Hello Kitty exhibition and the, you know, the tattoo, you know, exhibition. I mean, there's just so much, 
so much Japanese influence on the world. Uh, you know, it's it's uh, you know, it's it's just amazing. But but again, you know, that would be the legacy. Would be uh, you know, the the Japanese and uh, the the Asian American story. Yeah. And, and I actually didn't ask you before. What is your ethnic background? I'm actually Chinese from Hawaii. From Hawaii. And, right. And what generation? I'm actually third generation on one side, fourth generation on the other. So my uh, my uh, ancestors came over as plantation workers back in the 1880s uh, mm-hmm. from what would be known as Canton, but now it's Guangzhou. So it's uh, from Guangzhou, China, and they found their way to Hawaii. You know, they probably got lost. They were probably going to San Francisco, <laughs> but they got lost and, and ended up in Hawaii, which is a you know, I think a far better place because, you know, uh, somehow I, I am more agreeable with the, with the tropical climate. So yeah, I'm wondering now I'm wondering if uh, our ancestors have met because my great, great grandparents also came from Japan to Hawaii and did plantation work. My oh. grandfather was a, uh, he learned how to build dynamite and he needed irrigation from the mountains. Wow. Farm that. Yeah. Wow. And he brought it to California. And so he did it there too. Wow. Um, yeah it, those things <laughs> totally possible totally yeah, possible. And i'm sure they did everything in the 1920s um plantation strike as well uh-huh. i'm sure it was always always that history of things right um, that's cool right and right. um oh, last uh, last up but you know if you weren't in the entertainment industry what would you be doing oh well you know you uh <laughs> it was uh unt- i think this was a last minute decision for me to switch to uh to becoming a, a theater major. So I think I was prepping myself to probably be uh, an engineer or to be in physics. Um, and so I'd probably be very boring if, uh, <laughs> if it didn't, if I didn't go into the entertainment industry, but it was kind of like a last minute thing in senior year of high school in mm-hmm. terms of, you know, okay, I'm, you know, I'm going to go into math and physics because I was really good at it. And, uh, but somehow things were just not settled with, with what I wanted to do. And so that's when, um, uh, you know, I had asked my advisor at that time, you know, in terms of, you know, what are some of the good um, performing arts schools on the West Coast, you know, so it, it was like kind of like Seattle, you know, um, uh, Univers- University of Washington, USC, UCLA, um, and somewhere in San Francisco. I don't know wh- which one, but but yeah, I I'd probably yeah. be an engineer. I know, a boring engineer. No, no, no. I think I rephrase the question. It's like, what would you be wanting to do? I think a lot of people I've talked to, like, I want to be a cook, a chef. I would I would have done being a chef because that's what I would want to do. Is there another um, profession? Oh, I feel like you were going to be in that profession. You were just kind of like, cause I was going to be a rocket scientist. Like I didn't want to do math and computers. I was like, I'm going to go to visual effects um, wow. that way. But wow. you know, for me, if I didn't do film and entertainment, I would, um, I would love to own a food truck. Um, I have some great recipes. I love to cook. And so, Oh really? Is oh, there okay. A, is there a different you know profession what? that you would have loved to enjoy? You know, actually there, I don't think there is then, uh, you know, I, uh, you know, my entire family, has said to me, Tim, you are the only person that is actually doing what you wanted to do. And because everyone else, you know, they, <laughs> they found their job or whatever, but it wasn't necessarily mm-hmm. what they wanted to do. I, I think that's why, uh, 
you know, when I when I had made the decision when I was a senior in high school, that something just wasn't sitting right going into math and physics, and 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 what was what was it that was bringing me joy, was was the whole idea. And, and again, you know, Hawaii, and so you've probably been to Hawaii a, a, a lot. The whole idea of of Hawaii, of Hawaii is. You know the whole idea of, of of culture, of of song and and dance. You know the, you know the the mele and and the and the hula, and so that has always fascinated me. And so, I, I think that that's where I got that connection to the arts was probably you know being raised in Hawaii, and um, and listening to that. So so that's what made, that's what gave me joy. Uh, was when I was like in a show or something like that, and so I wanted to continue that joy. So I'm I'm actually doing what I want to do. Uh, That's so great, you know. Yeah, and 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 very happy still, you know, uh, a million years later. Well, Tim, this has been a really incredible conversation. Uh, I thank you for your your insights and your wisdoms here, and the extra time. Um, this was been this is an incredible conversation. I can't wait for our audiences to listen in, tune in. Um, and hear about it but thank you so much for all that you've done and left the, the legacies you've left but also just joining us in the podcast today well well i'm glad that i could share my my lived experiences with with everyone and thanks for inviting me no my pleasure all right tim thank you so much thanks thanks again to tim dang for joining me on the podcast and just spending some time to talk about it. i know we went over like almost at two hours now and i know it's a longer podcast but you know what i think it's just really important that we listen to these these stories and um i don't know i think that's it's really valuable for ourselves so i want to give one last quote from tim um this is from the real inequality by nancy wang yun um that's a you know we had our interview our podcast last season and i still think her book is just phenomenal so if you haven't read the book please do but here's a quote from him and just talking about uh taking a lead role uh, as an Asian American, even though it's kind of kind of racist, uh, might be stereotypical. And here's something that he said. It was Tim Ding, artistic director of East West Player States. You know, it's a terrible racist role, but it's up to you and go and get that part. And you get it and you dignify it and humanize it. The worst thing about it is if you turn it down and someone else gets it and they don't give it that dignity and humanity because it's just a job to them. I think that's really important. I think it's just so, it's hard. That's hard. It's hard to say, like, I don't want this job because it's stereotypical. But at the same time, what are you going to do? Someone else takes it. Might just be worse. So that's it for today's podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Um, this has been just an honor to listen to Tim. And we'll have another interview next week. Um, looking forward to sharing what we built and what we've uh, interviewed people and just sharing more experiences and uh, lessons from the industry. So Thanks again for listening. Uh, if this really helped, please share with on your Instagrams, your socials, your Twitters, your emails. You know, send it in, a, in download it, put it in a flash drive, send it in the slow snail mail. Like I don't really care. I just really want people to listen to this interview and other interviews that we put out and doing that. So um, yeah, because we're gonna build uh, some really great things in the next few years and even the next few months. So um, yeah, and if you're interested in hearing more about us, please check me out at strongasianlead.com or um, hit, up, uh, hit us up on our social media platforms. You know where to find us. It's all in the same places or just like any other place. <laughs> so um, yeah, thank you. I won't belabor the point, but uh, yeah, I just want to thank all our listeners who are listening in and take this chance to do something about it. So 
Thanks again for listening. My name is Masami Moria, and you've been listening to Strong Asian Lead.